Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, the American Medical Women's Association has issued a firm statement, quote, abortions performed by trained healthcare practitioners are safe and can be life-saving. Close quote. I'll speak with Associates President. Also, vaccines really are the foundation for the prevention of severe COVID-19 in children. Georgia pediatricians talk about the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines for kids under five. Important community conversations just ahead. But first, this Delta airline pilots are out in force nationwide today picketing. That includes here at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Why? Well, a few reasons. Better pay, more time off, and quite frankly, according to Jason Ambrosi, who's the Delta MEC chairman, they are exhausted. He took to social media today in expressing the pilots' frustration. We have over 400 pilots here in Atlanta today, over 1,200 pilots system-wide to show their frustration to Delta management over foot-dragging on our contract. These pilots stood up and were frontline leaders during the pandemic, flying records amount of overtime to get our customers safely to their destinations. They have earned, earned an industry-leading contract. They're currently working under a contract that was negotiated over six years ago. These pilots are here to show their frustrations with Delta management. It's time to get a contract now. In a statement to Closer Look, a Delta spokesperson writes, and I'm going to quote them here, This informational exercise by some of our off-duty pilots will not disrupt our operation for our customers. It goes on to say our goal remains to continue providing Delta pilots with an industry-leading overall contract with the best compensation based on pay, retirement, work rules, and profit sharing. We're also committed to making sure the contract language supports our ability to run a world-class operation, maintain a strong balance sheet, and invest in our business for our customers and employees alike. Close quote. All that is from Delta Airlines. In other news, Georgia Power wants to phase out coal-fired power plants, but state regulators could put the brakes on that plan, a move that would make climate change worse, as we hear from Emily Jones. Georgia Power's latest plan to generate and supply electricity calls for shutting down most coal units in the next five years, including two at North Georgia's Plant Bowen, the most polluting coal plant in the state. The utility says it ran the numbers and it no longer makes economic sense to keep the aging coal plants open. State regulators aren't convinced, though. Staff for the Public Service Commission did their own analysis and said closure of the plant Bowen coal units is a close call. The final decision is up to the elected commissioners, and recent headlines about high natural gas prices have some of them worried about abandoning coal. Here's Commissioner Bubba McDonald at a recent hearing. When you compare that cost of running a combined cycle of uh, whatever today with a coal unit, does this not give you concern? Georgia Power says natural gas prices should even out over time. But the commission could decide to keep the coal units open for eight years longer. Brian Jacob of the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy says every one of those years would make climate change worse. Every year earlier that you could retire those prevents that much more CO2 emitted that year. In 2020, Plant Bowen emitted nearly 8 million metric tons of greenhouse gases. Georgia Power's parent, Southern Company, says it plans to reach net zero emissions by 2050. A new report by Jacobs Group finds that Southern Company is on track to reach that goal by 2071. That's 15 years earlier than last year's outlook, but still far short of the company's own target. 
And while retiring coal plants helps, Georgia Power plans to replace much of the energy from those coal plants with natural gas, which still generates greenhouse gases and contributes to climate change. Emily Jones, WABE News. COVID-19 cases continue to increase across Georgia as the 4th of July holiday weekend approaches. Hospitalizations also saw a slight increase over last week as we hear that. More about that from Jess Mador. Since last week, the state is reporting around 22,000 new cases of COVID-19. There are almost 960 patients hospitalized with the virus. And with the holiday weekend approaching, health officials continue to urge Georgians to stay up to date on their COVID vaccinations and boosters. If you're traveling over the holiday, the Atlanta-based CDC recommends masking indoors in public areas, on public transportation, and inside transportation hubs. The agency also recommends masking indoors in communities with high levels of COVID-19 transmission. Jess Mador, WABE News. And finally, if you plan to use fireworks this 4th of July, a reminder, here in Georgia, technically, this is important, technically you're allowed to shoot off fireworks between 10 a.m. and 11.59 p.m. However, local ordinances can override that if there's noise legislation prohibiting fireworks during a specific time like at 2 a.m. when your favorite public radio host is trying to sleep. Also, keep an eye on the family pet, as fireworks may cause your fur child to take off. I know I would. And of course, as always, exercise, extreme caution. Have a great 4th of July. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The American Medical Women's Association has been in existence since 1915. If you don't know about that organization, well, you're about to learn, so stay with us. And like many medical organizations, the association has issued a disapproving reaction to the Supreme Court of the United States overturning Roe v. Wade. And in their initial statement, in part it reads, quote, the American Medical Women's Association stands firm in the right of individuals to access comprehensive reproductive health care, which includes abortion. Abortions performed by trained health care practitioners are safe and can be life-saving, close quote. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Dr. Teresa Rohr Gretchen. Gretchen Burr, hope I got that right, president of the American Medical Women's Association and professor of medicine at the Augusta University and University of Georgia Medical Partnership. Madam President, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And I'll just go by Teresa for this discussion, if that's all right. Well, can I call you Dr. Teresa? <laughs> oh, please, that'd be great. <laughs> After that $150,000 it cost me to get my education, I, I certainly earned it. <laughs> well, you earned it, and we should call you that. I want to go back to a, a couple of things that I read, a couple of headlines. And for some people, they say kind of sums up what we're talking about here. Here was one that said, quote, For doctors, abortion restrictions create an impossible choice when providing care. Through your lens, how much truth is in that statement? Oh, there's so much truth in that statement. You know, the, the discussion that a physician has with their patient in the exam room is one of reverence, to be honest. It, it is something that they let us into their lives. They let us into portions of their of their health and their and their faith and their community. It's a really, it's almost kind of like a sacred discussion. Mm-hmm. And the decision by the Supreme Court actually kills our ability to have that kind of a interaction because it it, it kills our shared decision making you know, you know go ahead well it, it's just that there is never a time that 
I, as a physician, should put in my own bias on what a patient needs to decide to do. I mean, I don't always agree with everything that they do, but I have to try to take their their experiences, their concerns into into the decision that we make on how to treat their health care, you know, how to take care of themselves. And it's it's a very delicate balance, and it, it's something that is quite honestly, it's the part of medicine that I love. It's the ability to to help them come to a decision, even if it's not the one that I would choose. Hmm. And even before last week's ruling, there are folks in science and the medical field were voicing concern. I want to I want to quote what Kara C. Hozier wrote for Scientific American back in May. She writes, quote, the goal of law, as with medicine, should always be to find the balance between benefit and harm. The justices have landed squarely on the side of harm. And I've been reading more about this. And the question is, when it comes to the medical and science community and what we, ex- their expectations we have for them, especially with folks like you who are doctors who are providing care, and then you have legislation that comes in that's an opposite of that. How do you all have this conversation with your patients or the conversations you're even having within yourselves in, in trying to bring some type of balance to this? Can you bring balance? between benefit and harm based on this new law? It's really, really tough. It it, it is because, you know, when we graduate from medical school, we take an oath that says first do no harm. So everything we do, we try to do in the light of how can I make life better for this person? How can I make life better for my community? You know, how can we improve healthcare so that diseases don't happen that can that you know my goal especially as a primary care physician is one that I try to prevent things from happening I'd much rather prevent a disease prevent a complication than have to deal with it after the fact although gratefully we have great interventions that can help but can you imagine being a physician standing in front of a patient who needs health care and not being able to give it mm-hmm. you know worrying about the fact that your inability to offer that care is going to result in a, a significant harm. You know, people, I, I, I've been hearing, oh, you know, it, it's, it's about if you really have to because a mother's life is in danger, you could do it. Well, but, but let's think about an example, if, if that's okay. You know, you have a woman who's 17 weeks pregnant, and she has premature rupture of membranes, which basically means her water breaks, mm-hmm. There's no way that child is going to survive. At that moment, the mother's life is not in danger. But as I wait for days or hours, the chance that she's going to become septic and die increases. So as a physician, that life is still, her life is not in danger at the very beginning. But how, when do, how long do I have to wait? Mm-hmm. How long do I have to wait to, to terminate that pregnancy? Do I have to wait until she's on death's door? I mean, those are the kinds of things that, you know, we shouldn't have to make those kinds of choices. We want to do the thing that's right for our patients. And the other component that people don't think about is it's not always the physical health of the mother. There's also the mental health of the mother. There are situations in which continuing that pregnancy is going to be incredibly difficult for that, for that mom. And it, it doesn't always have to be a physical thing. And to not be able to provide the health care that they need, that, that is really putting your physician in an incredibly difficult place. I want to continue with that for a moment because I'm wondering, Dr. Teresa, when you mentioned this puts a physician in a difficult place, what, do you, what consequences do you think this will have on more folks wanting to continue in reproductive health specialties, and also the mental health for doctors who are in in the middle of this. And then let's be clear, too, also, because of the climate that we're in, too, safety concerns as well. There are a lot of optics around that you know, folks who work in this space have to be concerned about when it comes to their own personal safety. And you oh, talk to absolutely. physicians all the time. I mean, we actually have... They're, they're, the, the bulletproof vest that one of our physicians had to wear back in the late 70s 
as she traveled to clinic um, to to perform healthcare with terminations. I mean, that still exists. You know, I read a story the other day of a woman who required a late term abortion because of her the medical complications, and she had to go to another state to have it done. That physician who did that for her was later killed in his church. While he was in church, he was he was murdered. Hmm. He saved her life by being able to perform that late term abortion and then suffered by losing his own. I mean, those kinds of stories, they're not uncommon, you know, unfortunately. And the other, you know, perhaps a, a situation that we haven't really talked about is the fact that we have medical students that will be coming through the process, mm-hmm. not having learned the procedures, you know, that they could, that they needed to learn in order to, you know, perform their duties. So we have, med- let's, let's just even think, for example, we have a physician shortage in Georgia. Mm-hmm. No question, we're working really hard on that. Now, you have an interest in OBGYN, perhaps, family medicine, and you want to learn how to be able to do procedures. If you're in a state where you cannot do those, or they're extremely restricted, you're, you're going to perhaps leave to go to a state where you are able to have those included in your residency program. And we know that once you leave the state, the chances of you coming back are pretty slim, especially mm-hmm. if you're not able to provide the care that you want to get. That is going to significantly decrease the number of physicians we're able to train and recruit to practice in our state. And for states like Georgia, where the plight of rural hospitals and facilities and medical centers and, and everything tied to that is still already at, at a crisis level, what are your concerns about being able to meet the, the needs for folks living in, in the rural parts of our nation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we think about it and just looking at Georgia, we already have the second highest mortality rate in the country. We don't want to be number one. I mean, we want to be number one for lots of other things, but not for maternal mortality. And so we know that that rate is only going to increase. Now, so we're going to have fewer people going in, fewer of our own medical students going into OBGYN in our own state. And so having, we already have pockets where we just don't have OBGYNs. And so those patients have to travel further and now you're gonna decrease that even more so? No, no. You know, we have to be able to think about the care that our patients need and be able to provide it, you know? I never thought in, in all the years and when I was a journalist that we would have a, a need for a reporter. I have a colleague who's gonna become a dis or misinformation reporter. Um, because it's needed. But there is a lot of information, misinformation, used by opponents of abortion rights. I want to be clear about that. I think we need to be clear and fair. What do you hear most often that people get wrong when they talk about when they're in opposition of abortion rights and in actual science and, and, and what medicine says? Well, you know, we, we saw it just in this recent decision. One of the Supreme Court justices called it barbaric. It's you know, if you think about it, especially now that we can do um, early terminations with medications, there's nothing barbaric about it. You take one medication, it blocks the production of progesterone, and then the next day, or within a, a little bit of time, you take four additional pills of a different medication that loosens the cervix and allows the products of conception to pass through. There's nothing barbaric about that. The one thing is it actually helps to save your fertility for later on. You know, we also have the ability to use methotrexate, for example, if somebody's having an ectopic pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, being able to stop that, that pregnancy really early on allowed that woman to maintain her fertility. I mean, you know, back in the day, we used to always have to go in and surgically remove it. Now you can take care of it with a pill, save her the, con- the consequences of a surgical procedure, and save her fallopian tube. Mm-hmm. I mean, that means you have increased ability to have that child later. Those those are the things, oh my gosh, Ohio was, had some ruling that they wanted us to take the, the pregnancy from the fallopian tube and insert it into the uterus. I mean, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. Yet you can't, you can't do that. It's, I think folks just have this impression of there's this little baby they can just reach in there and take and just replace it and put it mm-hmm. someplace else. That's, that's, not, that's not happening. 
Well, let me ask you this then, Dr. Teresa. What would fair, I guess, safe legislation around abortion procedures and, and reproductive health care look like to you? I mean, there's a lot in there. I mean, there could be a lot of provisions and a lot of mandates, but overall, what does that look like? What could, should it look like? It, it should look like get the heck out of the health care, stay out of the uterus. You know, health should be between the physicians and their patients and other health care pro- providers. That's where the decisions need to be made. It shouldn't be made at a legislative level. It shouldn't be made anyplace else. I mean, we already have a hard enough time, to be honest, dealing with what the insurance companies will allow us and not allow us to do in terms of what they will pay for. It doesn't necessarily stop us from getting some of the, the care that we need. But think about it. If, if we were able to, one, provide contraception to everybody and anybody that wanted it, Boom. Just have it easy, have it accessible, have it at low or no cost, have it be really effective. Then we could markedly decrease the number of unplanned pregnancies. But then let's have you be able to get the health care that you need. And remember, the termination and abortion is health care. It's not a religious covenant. Um, we have to be able to have that health care provided when it is needed, wherever it's needed. It shouldn't have to depend on the state that you live or the rural area that you live in, you know, or the background of the person that you're working with. I was not around. I was very aware of, as I say, back in the day when folks were trying to seek what other way they could in order to get this, get the procedure. We know about the coat hangers and, and all of that, and there have been so many documented stories you fear that this nation now does regress back to women possibly seeking some very unhealthy, if not deadly, what they might consider alternatives to going into a clinic and then having the procedure? Absolutely. I mean, I, I have colleagues who, when they were going through residency programs and when they were going through their training before Roe v. Wade, they admitted four to five patients a day, a day, who had abortions gone bad, septic abortions, perforations, illnesses. I mean, and some of those women lost their lives Mm -hmm. and some of them lost their uteruses, their ability to have a child. I don't think that outlawing abortion is not going to take abortion away. Outlawing abortion is going to take away legal and safe abortions. What we're going to see is an increase in the complications. You know, pregnancy is not just a simple thing. You know, there, there's a, a fair number of complications that occur because of pregnancy. And it's, it's a choice that, that you make to have to become pregnant and to carry that pregnancy through. And it shouldn't be made by somebody else for you. Yes, we are very concerned that the, there's going to be a significant increase in illegal and unsafe abortions and that women are going to have complications, and that physicians are going to be put in the really difficult position of when can I do this procedure, how can I save this person's life, and will I go to jail if I do it too early? I mean, that kind of stuff is really going to be a a difficult path for all of us. We're used to medical associations, obviously, always coming out and talking about the dangers of use of tobacco and and smoking and things of that that nature. We're used to uh, the associations making statements as obviously recently here with the, with the pandemic, we're used to that. And that's what people expect of you all with this statement, the firm statement that you all have put out against the Supreme court overturning Roe versus Wade. Did you have to go back and forth, speak with your boards? Did you have to talk to committee members to make sure all the narrative, all the language, because folks may not realize this, that when it comes to making statements, even when we had social calls for social justice here, even I've heard organizations saying we had to carefully craft our our statement as it relates to black people being alive, you know, things of that nature. Did you all have to grapple with that as well? No. And I say no as succinctly and direct as that because Back in the 70s, when this was becoming a very you know, big issue when Roe v. Wade was first being discussed, and even before then, the, the physicians that have been part of the American Medical Women's Association has have always been in support of health care 
and the rights of women to seek the, and obtain the health care that they need. So I think back in those early days, there might have been some, you know, discussion and, and arguments. But even from as early as 1915, I mean, we got together because we needed to be able to ha get appropriate health care for women all throughout history women physicians have really been at the forefront of looking for and finding and championing healthcare for women, whether it was designing women and infant um, hospital systems, whether it was helping to provide foster care, whether it was encouraging and, and providing contraceptive care for those women when they needed it. At every single institution, at every single spot, we have been there to say, women physicians need to help, need to be in charge and mm -hmm. women physicians need to be at the forefront of promoting increasing access and appropriate care for their women patients. So what's next for you all? I mean, I know obviously every state is going to be different. Um, we've seen some states already enact legislation. I know you all are paying attention to this. What is next for the association in, in this regard? We have so many different ways going on. You know, first we're gathering stories because we want to have women tell us their stories and men. We want everybody to tell us their stories in a way that is um, easy for people to understand. I mean, you know, for example, one of the things that has kind of come up about is the impact that this is actually going to have on infertility. You know, infertility management and treatment, that's something that's not being discussed. You know, what about those embryos that are frozen? Are the fertility clinics going to get in trouble if their freezer goes down? Are they mm -hmm. going to be sued for, you know, for um, unintended death? I mean, there's so many different things. So a couple of things that we're doing. One is we're working with a number of different medical organizations to come together so that we all speak with a similar voice when it comes to the needs for appropriate health care for women. We're also working in various states so that those physicians in those states are going to be covered and know what the rules are. And we're supporting organizations and folks and people that are that are at the forefront to make sure that women are be able to access the care that they need. Do you see so it's good. Do you, yeah. but do you see a need also to and maybe it's on the local level you all are equipping your your doc, your physicians here who are part of the association with the knowledge, and they probably already know anyway, but as it works, as it lends to working with lawmakers. Absolutely. And all, all throughout time, and, you know, and especially more recently, um, we've really been focused on, you need to talk to your elected officials. We need to be able to discuss this in a way that is not defensive, that is not accusatory. So yes, I mean, even within you know the last few elections, we've been uh, pairing up with voter registration uh, folks, with the Women's League of uh, the League of Women's Voters, mm -hmm. with Vote ER, which is a, an organization that encourages us to talk to our patients in the exam room, not to say how to vote, but just to make sure that they're registered, because what what you do in the voting booth affects what I can do in my exam room, and I think that interaction wasn't recognized as much I and mean, we certainly see that now so yes we want we want to interact with our elected officials but we also want to interact with just everybody mm -hmm. i mean the individual person you know they need to kind of understand that even though they don't think that this is affecting them individual there is an effect on the people that they know i mean one in four women in this country have had an abortion at some point in their life maybe you didn't know that maybe you did not understand that mm -hmm. You know, and it, it may not have been just because they felt like it. I mean, that choice is never an easy one. I've seen women struggle with that. So we want to have those discussions kind of out and about so that people can kind of realize that this is this is about them. It's not a, about you know, a person way down the street. This is about them and this affects their communities and their families. Can you recall, Dr. Teresa, when there's been what it appears with the credible medical associations, the collective disagreement with the p political or legislation that you all are imposed to. Can you think of a time when we've had this? You know, back back in the 70s, absolutely, before even Roe v. Wade got going. But, I mean, if you, if you think about it, throughout the course of history, even more very recently, you know, let's think about, you know, the, the arguments that have gone on about infertility, you know, or the use of surrogacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are states in which you can't have a surrogate carry your child. 
or there are states like Georgia where if you have a surrogate carry your child, even if it's your genetic makeup, you have to adopt that child once it's born. Now it's your child. You just had somebody carry it. I mean, there, there's all those various rules and regulations all about, and over time things have kind of changed. So yes, I, I think that we can certainly make an impact. Everybody has that responsibility. And we certainly have seen things change. We have seen rules change. You know, it used to be that you'd have to take your husband with you when you went to go get birth control. You don't have to do that anymore. You know, you used to have to have your husband with you when you signed for a loan for a car. You don't have to do that anymore. Yes, things can change. The world can evolve. Dr. Teresa Rohr Gretschgeber, president of the American Medical Women's Association and professor of medicine at the Augusta University and University of Georgia Medical Partnership. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And Closer Look will continue in just a moment. I want to let you know, in case you don't, an historic day for the Supreme Court of the United States. And that I will faithfully and impartially. And that I will faithfully and impartially. Discharge and perform. Discharge and perform. All the duties. All the duties. Incumbent upon me. Incumbent upon me. As an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. As an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Under the Constitution. Under the Constitution. And laws of the United States. And laws of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Now, on behalf of all of the members of the court, I am pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson becomes the first black woman to join the nation's high court. We're back in a moment. Culture Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden says it's a major milestone. The United States is now the first country in the world to offer safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines for children as young as six months old. And the first time in our fight against this pandemic, nearly every American can now have access to life-saving vaccines. Well, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention all agree that, yes, now's the time. Those first COVID-19 vaccines for children under the age of five is A-OK. And now as these vaccines, doses are being shipped out to states across the country. The littlest folks of our population, yes, they're now eligible to be vaccinated. However, we know that many parents do have questions about the vaccine. So what do we do? We call the people who are very smart and we love and they've been on the show before and they keep coming back. We got to get him a mug. Dr. Andy Shane, the chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and the medical du- director of infectious disease at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and Dr. Jacob Eichelberger, a pediatrician at Augusta University Medical Center. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I will get the mugs out to you, I promise, and maybe even a t shirt. Thank you. That was wonderful. Everybody's excited about that. Let's begin here. Uh, Dr. Shane, because you and I have been having this conversation for, I feel like, two years now. Um, So finally, here we are. Just your thoughts now that the littlest folks in our population now are eligible for vaccinations. Yes, this is such a fabulous achievement. And um, as we've talked about before, vaccines really are the foundation for the prevention of severe COVID-19 in children. We know that vaccines can prevent hospitalizations, they can prevent death, and they can prevent a lot of the long-term complications that we don't clearly understand uh, from this virus. Dr. Ackerberger, what do you think? Uh, I agree. I'm personally excited because I have uh, one of my five children is in this age group. Um, Mm -hmm. He's been the last of us that hasn't been able to be vaccinated or boosted. And um, we are, just like everybody else, sort of... um, emerging from pandemic um, lockdowns and precautions and going out in public a little bit more and starting back activities. And so um, 
it is good to know that he's going to be able to be uh, as protected as the rest of the family and uh, feel more comfortable putting him in group activities. Dr. Eichenberger, let me stay with you for a moment then. I imagine you've already had some questions from parents, caregivers. What have you? What are the, some of those common questions that folks have or concerns? Yeah, great question. Um, this one surprised me a little bit. I guess like most of the stuff through the pandemic has um, been surprising. The questions I've gotten are not the same as with the older age groups, um, usually because the technology for these is the same as um, the previously given vaccines that have been given billions of times. Um, the questions have been a lot harder to answer. Um, really? Which one should I get, Moderna or Pfizer? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to ask some of my local experts about that one. And the best answer is that you're probably not going to get to pick, uh, you know, if you find a location with a vaccine, they're probably going to have one or the other, Pfizer mm-hmm. or Moderna. Um, and both have shown efficacy and safety and both are approved. And so um, find a place that's convenient that has it that you can get an appointment for and um, get the vaccine that you are going to get. We have an appointment scheduled for my son. And I don't know which one um, he will be getting, but uh, the answer is that they both look safe and effective. Um, The other question I thought that was surprising that I haven't found any advice for is um, I have a kid who is almost five. Mm -hmm. Uh, They could get the older kid dose in, say, a couple months. Should I wait and do the five to 12 uh, vaccine or should I go ahead and do the four year old vaccine? Um, and it looks like the answer is probably vaccination as soon as possible is the mm-hmm. recommendation. Um, there were kids in this same um, scenario in the vaccine trials, kids that were four turning five during the vaccination process. Um, and so that's not an untested group. And so go ahead and get vaccinated uh, as soon as you can. All right. Dr. Shane, before I'm, I'm going to ask you those same questions that Dr. Eichenberger had. But what questions have parents been asking you about and their concerns? So I think one of the other questions, and I agree with the ones that have been asked, I think uh, people are worried about safety. Um, This is a younger age group, and a lot of children in this age group um, have a lot of other vaccines that they're also scheduled to receive. And so I think that making sure that parents understand that these vaccines can be given at the same time or um, at a different time with the regularly scheduled vaccines and that there's no interaction between those and that you won't overwhelm a child's immune system. So safe to give simultaneously with other scheduled vaccines um, is one. And then another uh, question, some families have also, especially parents, have had some side effects from the vaccine, have had Mm -hmm. sore arms, felt tired, maybe had a headache. And what has been really incredible is that the side effects in the children who have been engaged in the trials have been much, much uh, less than those that we've seen in older children and in adults. And um, so I think that that's also an important reassuring factor for parents. And Dr. Shane, Dr. Andy Shane, I have a question for you. Just popped up. I have a listener who says that I have a five-year-old who is bigger than most five-year-olds. Does the, and I think Dr. Eichenberg has sort of talked about this, which dose do I get? Because it sounds like maybe this five-year-old could use the the older for the older kids, or what do you recommend? And obviously, we always encourage folks out there to definitely consult with their primary care mm-hmm. physician. But as experts, you all can offer some suggestions. Sure, that's a great question, and I think we talked about that before when we had the uh, the five through twelve-year-olds. And so there were children uh, at all of all weights and all ages that were involved in these trials as well, and so. Um, You know, the point really is that one should get whatever is available at the time and uh, that there is uh, lots of evidence that um, that is really the way to go. And so I would advise parents not to wait uh, to get the dose that's available for that child at that age. And I think you both talked about this, too, as another question. You know, my child will be starting school soon. Should I wait and get them all at the same time or should I just go ahead and get the COVID-19 vaccine because that's what everyone's doing or should I, can I wait and get them all because he needs this before he goes back to school before he can start school rather well I think one thing to keep in mind is that it does take a little bit of time for one to actually develop complete immune protection after receiving both COVID-19 vaccines and other vaccines it's probably about uh, two weeks or so is what we know from the from the trials that have been done so uh, I would keep that in mind but also at the same time we're seeing surges and increases. And so really my recommendation would be 
if the vaccine is available, to go ahead and, and start the series. Dr. Ackerberger, there was so much talk, and, and I know I had Dr. Shane on and, and when they were doing the clinical trials. And again, obviously, parents, caregivers, their first concern is, is safety. You mentioned you're, you're a parent of five, too, so you understand both sides of that. Have you had conversations where you've had to try to convince other parents, and you are a pediatrician, um, about just the, the safetyness of this, of the vaccines? And what are those conversations like? Yeah, so this, um, at least earlier in the, before this age group, that was definitely the most common question I was asked was about safety and how do you know it's safe? And, um, you know, I know kids don't get as sick as adults with COVID, so how do you weigh that? Um, And so that is going to be a common question that we're going to get again as more kids are getting vaccinated. Um, And the answer is that it is very safe. The studies have shown it's safe. Um, And one of the things I like to tell parents is that you're not making a decision between um, sort of the vaccine and nothing Mm -hmm. with how contagious this virus is and how it looks like it's not going to go away. Um, You're really making a decision between a vaccine and a natural infection. And um, the studies that have looked at almost every parents fear, the myocarditis, the um, inflammatory liver stuff, the long COVID, almost all of the studies have demonstrated that a natural infection with COVID puts you at higher risk of all of these complications than the vaccine. Um, And in some cases, like the long COVID, some of the studies have shown that vaccine, getting vaccinated when you have long COVID reduces symptoms. So um, even with prior infection, it looks like vaccines will help prevent future infections and reduce um, complications of the natural infection after. Now, Dr. Eicherberger, I want you to, for folks who may not be familiar, you mentioned long COVID, uh, take that further for them and define it for us. Yeah, I'm sorry, I I did mention that without any introduction. Dr. Shane might be the um, more expert on that one. There are some formal definitions now. It Mm -hmm. was first described as a constellation of symptoms that persisted after after you got through the acute phase of the infection, like um, generally headache, fatigue, uh, muscle aches that lasted long after the expected disease course. Mm -hmm. Um, As we learned more, there are some formal definitions for long COVID. It looks much more uh, common than it was even at the beginning, although everyone probably knows somebody suffering from long COVID. I know I do. Um, Some of them mild. I've got Mm -hmm. a friend who has been six months after infection and still doesn't have sense of smell back. I consider Mm -hmm. that a pretty mild, but some of them are much more severe with headaches, fatigue, muscle aches, uh, loss of the sort of the ability to concentrate sometimes. Um, And so those are some of the symptoms of long COVID, um, but I don't have the uh, clinical diagnostic criteria right in front of me, and I don't want to misspeak. Maybe Dr. Shane could help me out. Dr. Shane, it's all on you. Um, Sure. So, yes, you know, I think that what was really described very nicely, and it is a whole, it is a constellation of symptoms um, following a documented uh, uh, COVID-19 infection. And so um, we've seen a, a wide range of symptoms. And I think the other challenge also is this is not unique to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID. We do see uh, post, we call it post-infectious, meaning after the infection syndromes uh, of fatigue after other viruses as well. But what's really interesting is that although there's been a lot of studies that have been done to try to understand what risk factors uh, exist and who is more likely to mm-hmm. have some of these long-term uh, manifestations, we really haven't been able to identify that. And I think that gets us back to really the rationale for, for vaccinating everybody. And as Dr. Eichenberger mentioned, the importance of really um, making sure that we get that foundation and, and protecting those children. I'd also say that, you know, we take care of a lot of children in the hospital mm-hmm. who have other underlying medical conditions. And what we are seeing is that those children who are not vaccinated are more likely to have uh, exacerbations or complications of their underlying medical conditions, which seem to be triggered by uh, COVID, uh, by COVID-19. And so I think that that's another important point for parents who have children who are medically complex, that it's even more important uh, for them to be vaccinated to be completely protected. Dr. Shane, I'll, I'll give this question to you. It comes from a listener who wants to know that about the 
booster vaccination for children between the ages of five and 11. Do you what's the time? She's right. What is the time period from that first vac- vaccination to the, this, the booster? Is it the same for adults as it was for adults? So um, CDC has a very nice uh, um, link on their website that you can input a child's age, the vaccines that they receive, the dates that they've received, and um, get uh, some guidance on uh, exactly when the booster dose should be given. And so there's lots of variables. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I uh, sure. we refer people to that because it depends on the dates as well um, uh, for one to know exactly. But the, a booster dose is now... Uh, universally recommended for uh, all children uh, five, five and older. Now, here's my question, because you both are fine pediatricians. You're wonderful folks. You're your parents. But you have a little one that comes in that is scared to death of needles. <laughs> I remember that age. What is your process for trying to get them to, to put them at ease? Are you Do you morph into like a cartoon character? You change your voice. What's your process, Dr. Eichenberger? How do you get that little one to be very calm and at ease? Uh, I think the answer here is almost always distraction, which means it's a group effort. Um, put the kid with the parent in some sort of comforting position. Maybe that's on their lap. Maybe that's holding them um, sort of chest to chest with, you know, your hand on the back of their head. Mm-hmm. And um, so number one, get the kid in a comfortable position. Number two, get some distraction here at the Children's Hospital. Um, we have Child Life available, which is a topic on its own, but mm-hmm. basically some folks that help us normalize the experience. Um, but if you don't have those sort of facilities in your office, uh, have a nurse with a noise-making device or a tablet. Um, I'm, I keep talking about getting a virtual reality headset sort of as a distraction method, but it is a very, very brief uh, bit of discomfort, um, and usually the kids do just fine. Dr. Shane, do you use a hand puppet? What you doing over there at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta? What you got working? Well, I think that those are great techniques. I, um, we have fabulous, fabulous nurses who are usually the ones who are administering, administering the vaccines, and they just have a magic touch. Um, you know, comforting parent is something wonderful. Um, also, if you can, if the child's older and you can try to rationalize with them, um, I have an eight and a half year old who went through this a couple of months ago, and bribery actually worked quite well. So, um, you was know, it I was it gelato? That, uh, because I'm getting gelato after the show, after I have a visit, you know, with with a, a doctor, medical checkup, and I'm going to get gelato. So that always works for me. I don't know about your eight and a half year old, but okay. He has a little um, other expectations, but, you know, I think the point is really sort of um, um, adjusting your recommendations and some of these techniques to the age and the uh, of the child and, and, the, and the family as well. And so the nice thing about these vaccines is that the way that they're delivered, they are actually not very painful at the time that the vaccine is, is given. Um, and most children, actually, it's more the anxiety of Seeing the needle that creates the problem, the actual injection itself is is very mild. And then I just have one uh, final question from a listener who wants to know, one of the doctors mentioned side effects, not to be an alarmist, but could I hear more about those? Um, sure. So we know we did several of the trials here and that uh, most children actually experienced a very uh, small uh, amount of uh, swelling or sore arm the next day within the first 24 hours. Um, some children had a little bit of felt tired. Um, that was usually more common after the second dose than the first dose. Um, but all of these uh, symptoms resolved within uh, a day or so of receiving the vaccine. Some children did have a sore arm that may have lasted for a little more than 24 hours. Uh, the arm became more sore when one had to do chores. Uh, but was less so when one wanted to go <laughs> swimming. So, you know, I think that the the main point really is that um, these, these side effects were much less than those that were experienced by older children and certainly by adults in general. And as we begin to wrap up and we start this conversation reflecting on just how far we've come, Dr. Andy Shan, I've asked you this before, you know, where do you think we'll be maybe by the end of the year in terms of, you know, folks, not not just the littlest ones, but, you know, I think right now we're about we're still under 70 percent total vaccination of, of eligibility here in our nation. But where do you see us going here by the end of the year, you think? Well, I really hope, Rose, that we can really try to increase the vaccination rates because 
the one thing about vaccination with this virus is we know that you not only protect yourself, you protect those around you. And so that is really incredibly important. Um, I do hope, you know, with back to school, um, there often isn't a focus on getting up to date on immunizations. And I hope that parents will consider um, having COVID vaccines as part of that uh, getting up to date. It really will allow children to go back to school. We've spoken about uh, the importance of staying in school and all the benefits of school. And mm -hmm. so these vaccines really help us. We also are probably going to have an interesting uh, flu season coming up and all of our viruses are acting in ways that we've never seen before. And so what we really want to make sure is that we don't have uh, great increases in COVID-19. And if we do, uh, that our families and children are optimally protected. All right. And Dr. Eichenberger, I'll give you the last word there. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to just add a little bit to what Dr. Shane said. Um, I definitely don't want to be predicting the future of this one, but I am looking ahead to some um, different maybe routes of administration, such as nasal vaccines, pan-coronavirus vaccines, meaning vaccines that are good against all coronavirus strains that are known. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll have some continued advancement in this vaccine uh, development um, and then honestly, at this point, it, since it looks like we're not getting rid of COVID completely, um, I would love to see some predictability, some seasons that are predictable. I'm, I'm in the hospital now and seeing tons of RSV, mm -hmm. and it is not supposed to be RSV season. So if we could get back to just some bit of predictability and um, an ability to anticipate what's coming, I think that would make me feel better. All right, Dr. Jacob Eichenberger, a pediatrician at Augusta University Medical Center. And, of course, you all are familiar with Dr. Andy Shane, the chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Disease at Emory University School of Medicine and the medical director of infectious disease at Children's Health Care of Atlanta. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you for answering questions from our, our audience. And remember, parents, gelato is your friend in all of this. Thank you both. Appreciate it. Take Thanks. care. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our summer intern is Lennox Johnson, who I just introduced to Parliament Funkadelic yesterday, and she was thrilled. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And as always, if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. We're going to take a little 4th of July break because we think we deserve it. So we'll see you back here on Wednesday. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.